everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. Make sure before you grab a seat that you have one of the handouts. Um, they're available on the tables by those back doors. There's also a few up here in front if you'd like to grab one. If you could also kindly silence your cell phones, double check, make sure they're turned off or on silence. That would be wonderful. And I just want to welcome you to this week of the Summer Writing Festival. My name is Rachel Yoder. I live and write in Iowa City, and I also have the great privilege of curating this lecture series. So um, we've already had two weeks of really amazing lectures, and this one is just set to be exactly the same with uh, Carrie Halley kicking us off. Please, thank you. So without further ado, we'll get down to it. Carrie Halley is the author of Throne, which you definitely should read, available at Prairie Lights, I think, a New York Times notable book, New York Times Editor's Choice, and pick for Best of the Year lists in Time, Salon, Slate, and many other venues. She is a contributing writer at New York Magazine, where she published a profile of disgraced osteopathic physician Larry Nasser, which was nominated for a National Magazine Award. She recently published a piece on Tulsi Gabbard. That's amazing. Um, and it's just a master class on how to write a profile. An assistant professor at the University of Iowa's nonfiction writing program, Carrie is currently at work on a nonfiction thriller about the American surveillance state. Today, she will present Revising Like a Hack, in which she'll discuss screenwriting guidelines and how these might guide your own stories, essays, and poems as you revise. Please join me in welcoming Carrie Halley. Hi, can you hear me? Thank you for coming. And thank you to Rachel for that very generous introduction. My name is Carrie Howley. I'm a professor at the Nonfiction Writing MFA program here at Iowa. Um, as Rachel mentioned, I wrote a prose-driven experimental work of nonfiction called Throne that involved mixed martial arts, um, mixed, mar mixed martial artists here uh, from here in Iowa. I've also written fiction. Um, I'm a journalist. I write for New York Magazine. And more recently, I've been adapting some of my more journalistic work for the screen. Um, and I recently sold a screenplay based on a profile I wrote, which involved largely um, turning a very complicated profile that reached into many different aspects of our surveillance state into a kind of more traditional journey. And in diving into the world of screenwriting, um, I entered this world of rules. Now, in MFA teaching, we tend to be really derisive about rules. We tend to see them as restricting the habits of the imagination, right? So what we're often trying to do in um, bringing out the best in our students is bringing them back to a place where they have the brain of a baby, right? Where they're not narrowly absorbing the world through one lens, where they're not filtering, where they're making all of these amazing connections um, that you wouldn't make with the conformist brain that you've developed to usefully interact with the world. Um, and that's fabulous for generating work. And I absolutely hope that's what you'll be doing this week. 
But I find for revising, I want to bring some of my engineering brain to bear on what I'm doing. I do not find it useful to look at some wild, crazy, creative work that I've made and look at it when I've, you know, when I've had that first outburst and say, now I have to make this better, right? For me, revising is always best when it's approached more narrowly. So I've always instructed my students to revise for one thing. So on the day when you're ready to begin a revision, say, I'm revising for color, I'm revising for character, or I'm revising for mood or tone, something deeply specific. And it's not that you'll only revise for that, but you kind of give your brain some structure to hang on so you don't get that sense of imaginative paralysis that often leads us to abandon work. And here, I've found the rules of screenwriting, this deeply rule-bound discipline that isn't afraid of um, straight-up instruction, to be deeply useful. I want to reiterate that my work tends to be very odd. I don't think these only apply for really straight-up narrative works. I think a lot of what I'm talking about is bringing to our conscious mind the subconscious way that we absorb and um, appreciate story. And so this is, and engage the reader. And so I think this can apply even for a profoundly experimental piece of writing. Even if what you're doing is kind of resisting these um, fundamental aspects of story that are so commonly discussed in like hackish screenwriting books. So, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use two examples to kind of anchor our discussion. The first is a book that I feel really beautifully illustrates some of these basic um, rules of a two-hour piece, uh, a two-hour journey. And that is The Age of Innocence, Edith Wharton's classic novel. Um, my students always said that they, because I'm constantly talking about The Age of Innocence, that they read this in high school. So I'm going to jog your memory a little bit if you haven't encountered a little bit or haven't read it at all. It's a, it's a really classic work of fiction. It takes place in high society in the 20s. Newland Archer, one of the protagonists, is happily engaged to the very appropriate and boring May Welland when he encounters a friend from childhood, the exciting divorcee, Ellen Olenska, and falls in love. Newland's journey is of a happy, well-adjusted guy who loves social order and believes in it to someone who finds it atrocious and hideous because it's keeping him from the love of his life, right? So it's a very clear journey that we travel with him on. And the amazing thing is once I return to some of these classic novels, um, Jane Austen, Edith Wharton, I found all of these screenwriting roles, or many of them, reflected right back at me. So they have, for instance, a midpoint. They have all of the points that we're going to talk about. Are, they, don't, they didn't come you know, from the either. They didn't come from Hollywood. Um, these are things that Jane Austen had intuited when she was writing. And, and so they're, they're deeply enmeshed in the fabric of what we expect a story to do, which isn't to say you should follow the expectations, but you might want to cultivate an awareness of them. So when I was looking for a second example, I wanted to choose a film, 
And all of these rom-coms came to mind because I'm so familiar with how they work, um, but they seem too close to the age of innocence. So um, as you can see from your handout, I settled on Rocky, the 1976 film by Sylvester Stallone. Um, so our spiritual guides here will be Sylvester Stallone and Edith Wharton. So as you'll recall, or maybe not, I didn't watch Rocky until I wrote a book about mixed martial arts because I knew nothing about fighting or um, sports when I started writing the book. Um, Rocky is the beaten down salt of the earth loser who needs resurrection. He's um, beaten down and beaten down. It's all obstacles for the first half of the film. And then he's given the opportunity of a lifetime. He's very condescendingly offered the opportunity to fight Apollo Creed. Apollo Creed is the heavyweight champion, and they fit, you know, his uh, opponent drops out at the last minute, and they're like, well, Rocky's ridiculous, and he'll sell tickets because he's a hometown hero. So now the good stuff. The first guideline, rule, whatever you want to call it, I'm going to talk about is called the midpoint. The easiest way to explain what screenwriters mean when they say midpoint is a place in the middle where the protagonist's goal radically changes. This is so common, so deeply enmeshed in the fabric of that two-hour uh, feature journey that I'd be very surprised if next time you don't watch a film, you don't see it very clearly. Um, the Age of Innocence, Edith Wharton's novel, is actually divided into two halves, book one and book two. But she didn't just you know, cleave it down the middle. What happens in the middle of that book is a wedding. Newland Archer marries the boring, appropriate Mae Welland, right at that point, exactly halfway through. And so his goal for the first half of the book had been to marry her, had been to avoid the temptation of the exciting divorcee who we desperately want him to be with because she's so interesting and nonconformist and not bound by these social rules. After he marries her, the goal is obviously different. The goal becomes for him to exit that situation. But the stakes have become much higher because in order to do that, he will have to, it's like throwing a bomb into high society in New York, right? It's like he will, he will have to break some fundamental rules of the society. So why do this? Why have a midpoint? Well, you reinvigorate the reader's interest in your story, your poem, your essay. You have a new set of obstacles to give us. And it's almost as if, and, and typically the stakes are raised. So it's kind of like you're waking us up right in the middle. And I've, I've noticed that in the novels of Austin and Wharton specifically, there's actually a midpoint to the midpoint. So if you think about four-act structure, which is kind of confusing because it's actually, or three-act structure, but it's actually easy to think about it as four acts. This is considered act one. This is considered the first act, half of act two, and the second half of act two, and act three. Um, I've noticed that at 25% and 75%, we also tend to have big, big plot points, right? So, so here's the midpoint. And that's that dramatic goal shift. Such drama that you're only going to have that once, probably, in the course of a novel. But in a lot of especially contemporary novels, you will also find big moments here and here. And again, this is just a very logical way to try to engage the reader. 
So in Rocky, interestingly, when we think about Rocky, we think, oh, this is the story of Rocky fighting Apollo Creed. But it's not until page 55 of that screenplay, right in the middle, that he gets that fight. And so for the first half of that work, we're, he's got all these little obstacles, right? He's got to win the fight he happens to be in, or he's attracted to the girl in the pet store and has to ask her on a date. And these are, um, these are all character building moments, such that by the time we get to the midpoint, we're profoundly invested in this guy who's been engaged in all these like soft-hearted works, like pulling a homeless guy out of the street and putting him under cover. Um, and he's you know, concerned about a girl who's hanging out with some older boys who seem to be a bad influence. You know, He's kind of showing his soft-hearted side for that 55 pages. And then we drop the midpoint, and now we have a super clear goal, win the fight. So this is profoundly related to another widely talked about screenwriting rule, but one kind of, that's kind of crossed over into writing pedagogy, so you may well have heard about it, which would be a ticking clock. So the ticking clock is going to add time pressure to your story. So all it is is something, you know, there's a clear duration until some consequence. So a fight is a terrific ticking clock, right? A fight is scheduled. It's going to happen. It's very scary. Somebody's going to get hurt. It's inevitable. Um, a, a wedding is a terrific ticking clock. It is scheduled. It's coming. After that, things will be seemingly irreversible, especially if you're in the 1920s, High Society of New York. Can anyone else think of other sources of time pressure that you encounter in works of art? Anyone? Yes, perfect. Yeah. Well, in my novel that was just published, there's, um, the protagonist is a young lady going to university, and the ticking clock is her graduation. She will be out in the world and have to think something for herself. Great. So these are all, yes? Terminally, terminally ill person. Yes, perfect. Thank you. Terminally ill person, baby, graduation. Anything that's going to radically change the story in which we can kind of create stress and um, worry and concern and engagement in the reader. So this is a really great way to approach one of those narrow revisions I was talking about. Read for a ticking clock. Where is the time pressure? And as you, you know, get all these reading assignments this week, I encourage you to look for these. Where is the ticking clock? In, you know, you're going to read classic short stories probably. I mean, the lottery. That's a very intense ticking clock, right? Um, be looking for these because they emerge in all sorts of interesting ways, dinner parties, etc. Okay. So another moment that you'll hear screeners talk about, um, and this one can be a little tricky because this really applies specifically to, or the way it's phrased, applies to works with a happy ending is the all is lost moment. So the all is lost moment for the protagonist typically happens in a film with a happy ending just before the end. It's when things are darkest. It's, some call it the whiff of death. It is when 
Our mortality seems clearest when we are about to give up, when um, it looks like there's no way out before the final battle, um, at which point we have some great triumph. Now, if the end of a film is a tragedy, as with, or of a book, as with Age of Innocence, um, then this is going to be a high point. It's got to be, the, we're looking for the opposite of the emotion we want you to feel as you exit the work, right? So maybe you could call that all is gained. I don't know. But the, the point is, it's unlikely that you're going to import this precisely right into whatever you're doing, right? A, a dark moment followed by a happy ending. But what I would encourage you to look for, to revise for, is um, an emotional tonality. So I see a lot of work that is flat. I see a lot of work that has one mood, which is very often depressive alienation, which is, that's great. Um, but if, if I'm going to feel that depressive alienation, I am going to feel so much more if I can see what it's like when your protagonist is profoundly engaged. So because my students are constantly writing about depressive <laughs> alienation, I, I often give them an assignment, which is, tell me three things your protagonist likes or loves. And they're like, oh, shit. Like, they have no idea. Because writing about happiness is hard, right? Uh, and I would encourage you to think about, if, if, if you're writing something in which you want me to feel really um, alienated, then show me a moment of ecstasy. Like, go push it further, right? Show me what it looks like. If, if you're writing about illness, you want to show me what health looks like, or else it doesn't register in the same way. And so that's really what this very simple kind of everything is terrible, then everything is great, now I can walk out of the film feeling great is about, is helping us feel the high point because we've been to the low point, or helping us feel the low point because we've been to the high point. So The Age of Innocence is a tragedy. Um, and so in the devastating ending, which I probably feel more when I read this than in any other work, um, spoiler alert, you should all, if you get nothing out of this, please go read The Age of Innocence. Um, but so Newland and Ellen are about to run away. Newland's going to leave May. And May says, um, before you say anything, Newland, before you tell me what you have to tell me, um, I need to tell you I'm very excited because I am having a child. And she's already told Ellen this, and Ellen has already run away, basically, because she she's not willing to violate that. And so that's the tragic ending. I mean, there's an epilogue that's even sadder, but <laughs> um, let's just focus on the main story. And so previous to that, there is a high point, which is we think they are going to run away together, right? So we can call that the all is gain moment. And we're so excited. We've been waiting for the consummation of this for like a thousand pages. It's like only 200 pages. But it's, it's like we are intensely engaged in the happiness of this couple. And we're about to get what we want when we lose it definitively forever. Okay? And that's what makes the ending so devastating. Now, at the end of Rocky, as you'll recall, or not recall, he does not win, but it's still a happy ending.
because he's held his own against Apollo Creed. He's won the crowd over, he's gone the distance, so it is a happy ending. And so we do have an all is lost moment, which is pretty brief actually, and not as dramatic as you see in most traditional films. But his all is lost moment previous to that is when he goes to the stadium right before the um, fight, and he's been watching fight film, and he goes home and says to his girlfriend, from the pet store, um, I can't beat him. Like, I've been watching fight film, he has no weaknesses, I'm going to lose this fight. So he's lost hope. It's a moment of despondency in which we also lose hope before we get to see him in his like, full flowering. So again, I think it's gonna be awkward to kind of try to jam a, a low point and a high point right at the end of whatever subtle thing you're working on but I would encourage a kind of emotional complexity. A lot of us are really comfortable writing in one tone. So for me, that tends to be a kind of like dry sarcasm. And so I need to challenge myself to be like legitimately sentimental in places um, or legitimately like unironically happy. And so I would encourage you to cultivate an awareness of what's easy for you so you can start working on making that pop more by making it not the only tone that's available to you. So everything that I have talked about thus far has been global. It's been about approaching the entire work and asking how is this working, where are the big moments placed, etc. But of course another thing that screenwriting is great for is thinking about the way scenes work, okay? So the last two tips I want to share with you or aspects of good screenplays I want to share with you um, have to do with looking at a specific scene in whatever you're writing. So the first is just the use of tactics. So if we think of a scene as two people encountering one another, with separate goals as a power struggle. This is how screenwriters talk about scenes. It's a power struggle, it's a status, somebody, a status game, somebody wins a scene, right? And so if you think about a scene in that really antagonistic way, which isn't gonna apply to all your scenes, but is a way to add charge to whatever you're writing. If you think of a scene in this profoundly antagonistic way, think about the way people get what they want. They don't just attack what they want with one um, with one tactic, with one strategy. So if my five-year-old son wants dessert, he starts by trying to take the dessert, and then I'm like, no. And then he starts, and then he has a new strategy, which is to whine. And then if that doesn't work, he has a new strategy, which is to bargain with me, right? Like, oh, well, I'll eat so healthy tomorrow if I can have this popsicle. And then he's actually, <laughs> he'll actually try to flatter me. He'll be like, mommy, you look so pretty. Can I have this popsicle? So. Th that's like, it's, it's very amusing to watch a child go through the list of tactics because it's so transparent. But of course, there are subtle ways that we do this um, in conversation and in scene. And so the last thing I want to do is look at this handout. And I've got a very tactic-heavy scene from Rocky that I would love for us to examine together, looking for the different tactics that Mickey the gym owner employs in his quest 
to get Rocky to let him be his manager. So at this point in the film, Rocky's had this amazing stroke of luck where he's, he's been handed this big fight. And Mickey, this gym owner who's been kind of an asshole the entire screenplay to Rocky, suddenly wants in. He wants to be Rocky's manager. Um, but Rocky isn't really into giving him the time of day. Um, one thing that comes into the scene that Mickey did earlier is when Rocky was at a low point, Mickey said um, he gave, he gave uh, Rocky's locker to somebody else at the gym, and then he was like, well, Rocky, you're old and you should retire. So that's a lot to overcome for Mickey. He's going to have to bring all of his persuasive efforts to bear here in his quest to get um, soft-hearted Rocky to give him what he wants. So I'm wondering if someone will be Mickey to my Rocky. Um, yeah? Anyone? Oh, yeah. OK, great. Thank you. We have, a, we have a true Rocky fan over here, so I appreciate that. OK. So um, Can you hear me? I would love for more of us to participate, but only some of us have the mics. So I will read the, um, the narrative stuff and be Rocky, and then if you could be Mickey, that'd be great. Okay. Okay, so we're in Rocky's apartment. Now this matters because Rocky's apartment is embarrassing. It is a, um, you know, it's just not well decorated, one might say, you know? Um, it's a hovel. And so even though we're in Rocky's turf, which it, that matters profoundly for a scene whose turf you're on, it's, it's a slight, it, it actually, in some sense, takes power from Rocky to show Mickey how he lives. So just be aware of that. Okay, Rocky returns home and enters his apartment. After turning on the light, he flips on his record player. He now feeds the turtles. He's got turtles, he loves his turtles, a way of connecting us to him, it's really sweet. Look who's home. A knock is heard. Rocky opens the door. I seen the light, I, I figured somebody was home. Hey Mickey, what are you doing here? Here, sit down. Rocky tosses soiled clothing off a mangled armchair, so emphasizing how gross it is. Best seat in the house. Hey, Mick, this is too much. Uh, how do you mean? I'm used to seeing you at the gym, but seeing you here in my house, it's kind of out of joint. By the manner in which Goldmill listens, it's obvious something important is preying on his mind. Rocky is uncomfortable, embarrassed at having outsiders see how he lives. Listen, Rock, uh, you're a very lucky guy. What's, uh, what's happening is freak luck. Oh, you're so good. <laughs> I never did this before. Freak luck for sure. <laughs> look, look at all them other fighters. Real good boys. Good records. Colorful. They fight their hearts out for peanuts. But who cares? Nobody. They got it shoved in their back door. Nobody ever gave them a shot at the title. Freak luck is a strange thing. So, what's the tactic here? I actually think it's to put him down. It's to say, you, you got lucky, yeah. right? This doesn't really have anything to do with you. This is just, you know, something that happened to you. So he's trying to put um, Rocky on a lower footing. Mickey does not hear. His attention is drawn to the turtles. What are those? Turtles, domestic turtles. <laughs> I'm here telling you to be very smart with this shot. Like the Bible says, you don't get no second chance. Mickey looks hard into Rocky's eyes. You need a manager, an advisor. I've been in the racket 50 years. I've done it all. 
There ain't nothing about the world of pugil the world of pugil pugilism. <laughs> I can say that 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 I ain't lived up here. He lights a half-smoked cigar. Fifty years. years, huh? Yeah, fifty years. The rep is known around the rep is known around Philly, and a good rep can't be bought. But I don't have to tell you that. How about a glass of water? Rocky, do you know what you done? What I done? What? I done it all. I done and seen everything. Believe that I'm telling you, you should have seen the night in Brooklyn. I smacked Ginny Russo out of the ring, September 1923. Same night, Firpo knocked Dempsey out of the ring. But who got the press? He did. I had a manage. He had a manager. You got a good mind for dates. <laughs> Mickey definitely continues, becoming more engrossed every second. Look at this face. 21 stitches over the left eye, 34 over the right. My nose was busted 17 times, the last being the Sailor Mike fight, New Year's Eve, 1940, in Camden, New Jersey. What a professional pasting I give him. Here, read about it. Shows a tiny press clipping, points to cauliflower ear. And I gave him the vegetable on the ear. I got pain and experience, and you got heart. Kind of remind me of Marciano, you do. So, two things to note here. We have the hard press. I have the experience. You need me as your manager. I've been around. Um, but also, it's pathetic, right? He shows a tiny press clipping. A tiny, there's something so pathetic about how tiny the press clipping is, right? So, we're turning to a place where Mickey is going to, ask us to feel sorry for him. And this is a setup for that. Rocky points to his most prized possession. Nobody ever said that. There's his picture. Yeah, you kind of remind me of the rock. You move like him. So now we're at flattery. <clears throat> Mickey has rung the bell. Nothing could please Rocky more than being compared to his idol. Really think so? You got heart. Heart, but I ain't got no talker. Rocky shifts against the wall and lowers himself into a crouch. Christ, I know this business, Ricky. Rocky, when I was uh, fighting, Ricky, <laughs> I changed his name. <laughs> Rocky, when I was fighting in this dirtiest racket going, see, pugs like me, we was treated like fighting dogs. Throw you at the pit for 10 bucks and you try to kill each other. We had no management. So I had to condense this, but it is a very long monologue about everything he's been through, right? Like, it's, it's kind of like, I've earned this. I fought for nothing. I had no management. I couldn't succeed because I had no management. I, you know, I had my ass kicked constantly. Rocky shifts against the wall. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, Rocky rises and opens a window. Respect, I always dish you respect. You gave Dipper my locker. I'm, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, kid. I'm asking man to man. I wanna be your manager. Look at that, almost begging. I mean, the, the tactics are spelled out right on the page. The fight said, I don't need a manager. Look, you can't buy what I know, you can't. I've seen it all, I got pain and I got experience. I got pain and experience too. Please, kid. Straight up begging. Whatever I got, I always got on the slide. This shot's no different. I didn't earn nothing, I got it on the slide. I needed your help 10 years ago when I was starting, but you never helped me none. Mickey drops the ashtray and kneels to pick it up. If you want my help, why didn't you ask? Just ask. Look at that. He remains on one knee. I asked, but you never helped nothing. Like the Bible says, you don't get no second chance. Rocky, I'm 76 years old. Maybe you can be the winner I never was. Your shot is my last shot. Rocky is choked and goes into the bathroom and closes the door. 
Mickey struggles to his feet and like a beaten man leaves. Several moments later, Rocky steps out and lowers himself into bed. Springing up a second later, he runs outside. Okay, thank you for that amazing performance. Thank you. So, yeah. So the tactics here are really clear. Um, I also want to point out what happens in the next scene. Rocky races up the block toward the shadowy and hunched form of Mickey. Mickey has run out of the house. Way in the distance, we see Rocky stop the old man beneath a street lamp. He places an arm around his shoulder. So in the end, Mickey gets what he wants, and he becomes the manager. It doesn't seem like that for the entirety of the scene, right? Um, and that's what we call a reversal. It's a really satisfying way to end an encounter like this because it's the opposite of what we expect. Um, but it doesn't come out of nowhere because for the entire screenplay, we've learned that Rocky is so self-hearted. He just couldn't take it. He couldn't take how pathetic Mickey seemed there. Um, he's an old man. He wants this desperately. He doesn't deserve it, but Rocky is a really good guy. And so we have this really satisfying moment where um, Mickey bears his soul and we get so much resistance from Rocky and then he caves at that, very, at that last moment and it's just like very um, sweet and satisfying. So I would be thinking not just about tactics, but how can I wake up my reader, surprise my reader at the end of a scene? Often people do these reversals too early. So you can imagine Sylvester Stallone having, um, having had Rocky relent much earlier in the scene. Um, but the kind of the work you have to cultivate as when you're character building is to make things a little more painful <laughs> for your character very often, right? So make things harder, build obstacles. So something very different, um, and this is the last thing I'm going to talk about, and then there'll be plenty of time for questions, is the way that tactics are employed in the Age of Innocence. So there's an extraordinary scene in the Age of Innocence. Um, it's in chapter 9, when you go home and begin the Age of Innocence immediately after this talk. Um, and this conversation is vastly more subtle than the, I think, beautifully crafted conversation we just read, in that people aren't asking for things directly, but there's a massive clash of worldviews. So Newland Archer has come to Ellen's unfashionable, inappropriate apartment, and his job is essentially to push his worldview on her, to say, you should follow the rules. The society exists for a reason. Even if they seem random, like, do um, as the society dictates and everything will be fine. Why would you resist? What's the point? That's childish. Ellen doesn't even seem to be aware that she has a goal here. But what she's doing in the way she reacts to how Newland speaks to her is pressing her own total obliviousness and lack of interest in these rules back at him. And that creates some really fascinating subtle conflict. I was only able to include a really small part of this scene, but I think it's illustrative. This scene actually does end in a reversal. So um, when you go check it out yourselves, look for that. Um, but here's just a selection. Last night, he said, New York laid itself out for you. The von der Ludens do nothing by halves. No, how kind they are. It was such a nice party. Everyone seems to have such an esteem for them. 
The terms were hardly adequate. She might have spoken in that way of a tea party at dear old Miss Lanning's. So, I mean, what's great is she's like giving him what he wants, but not forcefully enough. So he's just like, he's actually stunned by her lack of respect for the most important family in the society. The terms were hardly adequate. The Vanderloyden, said Archer, feeling himself pompous as he spoke, are the most powerful influence in New York society. Unfortunately, owing to her health, they receive very seldom. She unclasped her hands from behind her head and looked at him meditatively. Is that perhaps the reason? The reason? For their great influence, that they make themselves so rare. He colored a little, stared at her, and suddenly felt the penetration of the remark. At a stroke, she had pricked the Vanderloindens, and they collapsed. He laughed and sacrificed them. So, again, she isn't necessarily even conscious of the way she's pushing back. But in not buying into his worldview, she's actually, what we would say in screenwriting, is she's won that moment. That was a one for her in which her status rose and his and that of society had lessened. And so if I were you know, reading The Age of Innocence as a screenwriter, I would be like, oh, this scene, this is a scene, this is a true moment of antagonism, even though everything's deeply buried. Nastasia bought the tea with handleless Japanese cups and little covered dishes, placing the tray on a low table. But you'll explain these things to me. You'll tell me all I ought to know, Madame Olenska continued, leaning forward to hand him his cup. It's you who are telling me, opening my eyes to things I'd looked at so long that I'd ceased to see them. And so it goes on like that, in which he's... he's taken aback but continues because it's the only way he knows to try to press his own worldview on her and her kind of lack of having already bought into this whole system is changing his worldview throughout the scene. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thank that you was so wonderful. Much. That was really fun.